Hey, Shane. Hello. Hi, hi. Hi, hi. Um, so, today I wanted to ask you a question. Oh, boy. Yeah. What are, like, some of your earliest memories, most embarrassing memories oh, kind man. of thing? Um, as for, so as for, like, embarrassing, most of my embarrassing stuff, I think, has happened later in life because I care more. Uh, some of my earliest stuff, though, is I remember I have vivid memories of my brother, one of my brothers specifically, um, at Disney World. So we're at Disney World, and I'm like three years old, and I distinctly remember him dragging me up to see, <laughs> it was like Mickey and Minnie Mouse, I think, and I am terrified. Like, I am just so terrified. I remember crying. My mother's yelling at him. He's just laughing gleefully. Uh, yeah, so that's... Oh, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's yeah. That's a pretty good one. What about nice. you? I don't know. I like don't feel like... I mean, I probably do have memories. <laughs> Things seem hazy before like third grade, but you know. <laughs> but in terms of embarrassing, man, we were like cleaning out some photos at my mom's house. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that that middle school, early high school is not good. Oh, it's not good. No. I was like four foot eight until I was like seventeen years old, I think. Wow. And like well, I'm you know, I'm normal height now. <laughs> but glasses, braces, big hair. Nice. The whole deal. Nice. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, the reason we're talking about memories today are because we're gonna talk a little bit about fossils. Um, so I know memories aren't fossils, but they're kind of like emotional fossils oh. that we leave behind, perhaps. So very deep. Very deep. Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompey. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. So Nancy, did you ever did you ever collect fossils or anything growing up? No, but I <laughs> I don't know why. I was not expecting reminds this. Reminds me some random trip that I took to Myrtle Beach, and you can get shark's teeth on a necklace. Sure, definitely have one of those. <laughs> and when we were in Israel, when I was like I don't know twelve, we went on this archaeological dig that my mom was convinced that they just throw things in like the dirt, so like you like tourists can find them. Nice, <laughs> nice. Well, no fossils. Okay. What yeah. about you? No, no, not really. Uh, but but I, I'm as a child interested in stuff. But we talked with um, an expert in the field. So actually, we're going to bring in our uh, producer, Liza Lester. Hi, Liza. Hi, guys. So what's like, what'd you bring us today? I talked with Hanata Neto. She's a scientist at Unicinos University, which is a big Jesuit university in the south of Brazil, and she is an ichnologist. Ich, like like fish ichthyology. Not fish. Not fish. No, no. Ichnology <laughs> is, is the study of trace fossils, which oh. we're more familiar with body fossils, which are the shape of the animal itself. Maybe it has a skeleton or the imprint of its skin or its armor. And these are more the traces that the animals left behind as it, as it slithered or walked or crawled or dug burrows or interacted with other animals. So they're kind of memories that have been preserved for us from hundreds of millions of years ago. Oh, memories. That's so cool. Yeah. Ancient footprints. Ancient footprints. And in fact, ichnos is a Greek word that means footprint. So oh, ichnology. Lovely. So what's, uh, what's her specialty? Hinata specializes in the Ediacaran period, which was a time when 
animals were first becoming, well, when animals first appeared, I guess you could say, hmm. like the first large multicellular life was appearing in the fossil record. And it was this very sort of alien, mysterious time. They don't look anything like the animals that are alive now. Um, but they flourished for almost 100 million years, hmm. um, but 600 million years ago. And then suddenly in about 542 million years ago, they just vanished from the fossil record. And you see this explosion of diversification of animals that in the Cambrian period, which people may be more familiar with. Um, so she studies these trace fossils from that time. Very cool. Well, let's uh, get to it. Well, they don't look like fossils. <laughs> you don't have the body fossil, okay? You have only the trace fossil. The burrow, the trail, the track or trackway, the nest, some uh, insects make interactions with leaves, and so these interactions can be preserved when these leaves are preserved as fossils. And um, even, it's rare, but, uh, oh, poop, it's very common. <laughs> and what is, is rare is, uh, for example, some sort of biogenic structures like uh, web, spider's web, pieces of uh, eggshells, for example, Imagine you go to the beach, and so you see a lot of uh, small hollows uh, on the beach. We are walking, walking, and you see these small hollows, sometimes with bubbles. So beneath the substrate, you have a burrow, and you have a clam inside this burrow. And the clam is living in this burrow, and they used to live in the burrow for protection or to get the best position to, to grab their food or oxygen when the tides come and the currents bring some new fresh water. So to be in these burrows for them, it's a style of life. So when they leave these burrows, these burrows can collapse, be destroyed, or they can be preserved. And they are normally preserved because most animals interact with the substrate in the surround of their body. They exchange mucus and other biological substances. So these substances react with the physical uh, media. And so they start to make a kind of uh, small glue, a kind of bio-glue. And uh, this uh, glue promotes a kind of pre-cementation and when this uh, substrate became a rock, these structures tend to be preserved. So when you go to the field trip, you see a lot of rocks and you see these structures on cliffs or something like this. And well, you have to, to see them, to describe them, to photograph them, to see the details. And most of times you cannot take them and take take it to your lab the side of the cliff. <laughs> because they are inside the cliff <laughs> and because you cannot bring the cliff and <laughs> maybe when you try to get them out you destroy them mm. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so ecologists spend a lot of time in field trips because they are uh, object of work they need to work them in field trips. So there are some samples that you can collect. For example, I used to work with um, very nice stuff from an ancient glaciation, the Gondwana glaciation that was 
around 300 million years ago. And this stuff's pretty, pretty nice. And, and they occur, the rocks where they are preserved, people use these rocks as slabs for pavement. So these rocks are uh, explored in quarries, and when they open these labs, there are plenty of trace fossils. So these ones you can collect because they are taking these labs. Did you say they're querying it for pavement, or is it like, could you see some of these fossils in a countertop or something like that? What kind of, <laughs> what are they making? Well, in the case of these quarries that I mentioned, yes, they are used m mostly for a pavement on the streets, okay. and uh, but they also use these uh, slabs to construct walls and, and pig farms to separate the, the pigs, you see. They are plenty of trace fossils, beautiful ones. Some that sometimes you see only on the sidewalk. <laughs> yes, I had my moment that I saw a trace fossils in the sidewalk and I said, oh my God. I don't have this uh, specimen in my collection yet, so I try to negotiate with people to replace. They give me that slab and I replace for a new one. And yes, the people usually understand and you're scientific crazy. <laughs> and, and they are helpful, yeah. But uh, the quarries, yes, the pigs come, they live with trace fossils, beautiful ones beside them. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> that is like so cool. And like, have you ever done that? Like, walk by a building and seen, you know, like impressions of things in there? It's so cool. Like in the rock or in the yeah. stone. Yeah. 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 Definitely. So that is so cool. Yeah. I do, I do have to say though, uh, like my science background is studying living things. It's like what got me interested in science, why I care about science. So, why should we, and I mean like the royal we, uh, all of us uh, care about dead stuff and rocks. Well, <laughs> <laughs> besides dead stuff and rocks being really cool, um, it can, sure. these traces can tell us a lot about um, what life was like 600 million years ago, how these interactions happened between organisms, what they were eating, was there oxygen in the atmosphere, what was the chemistry of the ocean. It's really, they can really learn a lot from a hole in the ground that an animal has dug. And this can also tell us about how organisms responded to major climate changes. You know, the Ediacaran was a time of huge geological change. There was the end of this big um, ice age, there was an asteroid impact, there was the dissolution and reformation of these supercontinents and the ocean changed its chemistry. So, you know, we're facing some big changes now. Maybe this can tell us a little bit about what happened in the past. Fascinating. See, Shane, you should care. We'll see. A lot of interactions that are preserved and even that those, the interactions made by bacteria, microbial mats, on the substrates, they can leave a sort of sedimentary structures, very particular sedimentary structures that reveals that they were present in, in the ancient substrates. And if you have a chance to see the group or, or to try to make an approach about the group of bacteria that were there, you can make very valuable interpretations in which conditions uh, that substrates uh, were exposed or uh, I don't know the word in English, but 
the chemical and physical conditions of their substrates when the microbial uh, mats were there. When the bacteria are there, like what the conditions were around them. Yeah. How old are we talking about here? Well, I usually work with stuff that has around 600 million years old or 300 uh, million years old. And even with more modern stuff, around 120,000 years old. Only 120,000 <laughs> <laughs> What did the world look like 600 million years ago? What was it like on Earth? Was it oh. volcanoes? Was it oxygen in the air? Was the sky mm. blue? What is it like? No, apparently uh, six uh, million years ago, the Earth was a little bit more stable than in the beginning. But uh, we don't have the same extension of continents that we have now. So we had a unique continent that was called Rodinia at that time. And uh, it, this continent was really smaller than the Pangea, for example, that was the biggest uh, continent that we had in the history of uh, Earth. At this moment, uh, six million years ago, more or less, we are talking about, we had a very, very huge glaciation in the world. It's uh, known as the snowball wars. Mm. And the snowball wars, it's because apparently the ice from the poles extended almost all to the equator, so only the equator zone were free of ice at that moment. So when this uh, glacial period finished, we had the explosion of uh, pluricellular life in Earth, not the, not the Cambrian explosion, but the Precambrian explosion uh, that we, uh, it's now like the Ediacara fauna or Ediacara biota, which is the more, mo most correct terminology. And then the Cambrian is when the trilobites and things like that yes, happened. Yes, okay. yes. And the Cambrian trilobites come to life and also many other uh, invertebrates that are relatives from the invertebrates that we have now. So almost all the groups, the modern groups of invertebrates that we have now in our biota, modern biota, they have relatives in the Cambrian. What, what do these fossils look like from the Ediacarian time? What are the animals? Well, are they animals? Uh, <laughs> are they plants? What are they? Well, it's interesting. Some looks like plants, but they were not plants. There were some uh, very crazy animals with a crazy structure. All right, so I take back my previous dig. Uh, Get it? <laughs> that was really bad. <laughs> Speaks to the woman who gets up at open mic night at fall meeting <laughs> every year and just reads terrible, terrible science jokes. But yeah, this is this is neat stuff. No, it's totally cool. So where does she go? I mean, other than finding these things in the pavement outside <laughs> her home, where does she actually go to study all this? She's really been all over the world. Um, she's done a lot of work at Ushuaia, which is at the very tip of the southern end of South America. She's been to Utah. She's been to Namibia in southern Africa. She's been to Denmark, um, studied ancient tsunamis in Japan. These fossils are all around the world. So cool. Also in Portugal, in Nazaré Beach, where we have these big waves, you see, that surfers go to the biggest waves in the world. So just beside the beach, there is a very, very nice outcrop 
plenty of beautiful trace fossils, and also in Bahamas, many places, Cuba. One question I have, I mean, you said, obviously, you can't take this home. So, you, you know, you have to go out there and do all your work in the field. So what is a typical field trip like? I mean, what's a, you know, in your day, and how do you... Well, it depends on the place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are places that the field trips is very, uh, like, uh, touristic. You see, like in Bahamas, it's a very nice place. You have, uh, we used to stay in a research center that keep you the facilities, transportation, food. So you go to the beach, you, you work in sandals, and sometimes maybe in swimming pool, you see in swimming wear. And sometimes you have to dive, which is great also. And you have this warm climate, the water is good. So it's really, really amazing place to work and very easy to work. For example, when I was uh, working in Namibia, in the south of Namibia, it was a little bit hard because it was hot. It's a kind of desert climate, so very hot during the day, cold during the night. The source of uh, water that we have, we had was uh, limited, so we cannot waste water. So the guys, cannot wash themselves for two days. Nah? I was the only, the, I was the, I, the unique woman and they kept some water for me to wash ah. myself, which was great, but support the smell of the guys in the second day was not <laughs> so good in the truck, but it's part of the work. And you learn to, to, to support it and you take it like, okay, that's fine, no worries. I'm just picturing this this strange person on the beach, maybe like in field clothes or whatever, digging around, pulling things out of the ground. Does anyone ever ask what she's doing? Like when she's on the beach in these gorgeous tourist places in the Bahamas, are surfers or beachgoers or whomever wondering like why she's there looking through a magnifying glass at this random spot like on the beach or in the cliff or something? Yes, sometimes, yes. They come, they approach, and they ask what we are doing and uh, we explain and show them and they became fascinated because they went to that beach for years and they never 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 realized that there was some sort of thing preserved there so yes it's it's pretty common when you go to these uh, places that are more uh, populated that they ask you what you are doing the places you're looking at are they fragile or are they sturdy you can go back year after year and see them again or is it well way on the cliff some places are very fragile. There is a place in Argentina. I don't use to work in this place, but it's a very famous case. In this place, we have a footprint and tracks from uh, animals, from the, the big mammals, from the place to scene area, but also human footprints. They are preserved together in the same substrate. And these uh, deposits are very uh, close to the beach and the tide is high. So the tides and the waves are eroding, are weathering the, the, the substrates. And also people that visit the place, because they don't know the value of that structure, so they used to go and walk. And, and it's a very fragile rock, it's a carbonate rock, so it's, it's complicated too to be preserved. They try, there are, there are groups that try to preserve the place, but uh, sometimes they have uh, big problems.
where I work, that is in the south of Brazil mostly, we have a problem with the humid climate and the weathering. So uh, it's pretty, uh, vegetation grows up very fast. And so they use to cover old crops. And sometimes you go and work in a place and the next year you need to go back there to check some information and you don't have more the place as it was when you started to work. It's a, it's a big problem, it's a big challenge. The other problem are the queries because the queries are good because they show you the biogenic sedimentary structures due to exploration, but they have a commercial intention. So the material, if you are not fast enough to describe all the material in these queries, we can lose a lot of information. Yes, we have problems with our original data. What's the most exciting thing that you ever found? when you were in the field? Your favorite? My favorite thing, the, the most exciting thing that I found was, uh, you see, there are some kinds of uh, shrimps. We call them Kaliana seed shrimps, and they do big burrows, big, big burrows, and the burrows are very extensive, and they used to burrow on the subtidal area and intertidal area on beaches. And the burrows are very extensive because they live the whole life into the burrow. And so they dig, 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 dig. And they are really beautiful burrows because these guys are very nice ecological engineerings. They rework the sediment. They have to put the sediment that they excavate in some place. So they use it as a kind of bricks to support the uh, burrow and to keep the flux the, of water inside the, the gallery. And they live in, uh, there. They, they make uh, places where they can turn around and go back and to visit another part of the gallery. They are very smart guys. And the most exciting thing was studying some of these um, structures in Pleistocene deposits from Brazil. I found very tiny burrows, very, very tiny burrows, baby burrows. It was really, really exciting because the bay burrows had almost the same structure of the big ones, but they're really small. Imagine like toothpick. Yeah, that thing. Really, really smart. Nice to see and on glass, the magnification glass, that the, the neat arrangement of pellets that they have. And it was a kind of challenging because we know that the larvae of these animals are mostly planktonic. They live their whole juvenile life on the plankton. And so how they do burrow and when they start to make that burrow. So it was a kind of challenging to learn and to know when they start to, to make the burrow and how it. And it's very, very interesting because when they become the, the phase before they, they become an adult, they need to go to the bantus. And when they reach the bottom, the bottom needs to be composed by a sort of sediment that is uh, sandy size. If the, if the bottom is muddy size, the animal will not survive because he will not be able to excavate and to keep the burrow open. And he needs to do it. 
So it was really nice work and really exciting experience to understand what the burrows mean. And so you find them laying down the, the bigger ones, like the baby burrows and the mom burrows. Oh, it's really <laughs> exciting. <laughs> I used to say to my students that it's quite impossible to be a geologist without think that the life was present in the history of the earth since the beginning, since that we have crust, earth's crust, we have life in the way that we know life. And uh, it's quite impossible to dissociate the life history and the earth's history. Of course that you can study a mineral or a seismology or a volcanology or whatever without think about life on Earth. But if you really want to be a good geologist, you have to consider that they were responsible for many, many transformations in the world. For research purpose, we, we focus on this, on that, on that. But when you see the Earth as a kind of unique structure, our home, it's impossible to dissociate life on Earth's history. See, Shane, it really is all about life. I guess so. Geology and life. Yeah, that's true. Geology is life. Geology is life, yeah. <laughs> I'm also just sitting here, like, just, I'm amazed we haven't talked about, like, brought up, like, a Jurassic Park reference at all. I know that's a bastardization, but... Like that, like, in regards to fossils? I have no idea. Yeah. Oh. This is why I'm a biologist. Sweet. I like, I like that movie. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Anyways, <laughs> that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks to Liza for bringing us this story and for Henata for sharing her work with us. Uh, this podcast is also produced with help from Josh Spizer, Olivia Ambrosio, Laura LaPuma, and Katie Brundle. And thanks to Kayla Suri for producing this episode. We would love to hear your thoughts. Love. Uh, love to hear your thoughts on our podcast. Please, please, please rate, review us on iTunes. Um, listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, always at thirdpodfromthesun.com. All right. Thanks all. And we'll see you next time. Bye.